Good morning, everyone. I'm Lauren, and I'm going to be um, be giving the talk today. I'm one of the local Dharma leaders. So this morning we are going to um, uh, do a talk on. I'm going to do a talk on greed. So we're still in July, and we're still working with greed. And I'll start with a, um, a meditation. And then we, I'll do the talk, and after the talk, we'll have uh, time to discuss in breakout groups, if you can stay for that. So that's our regular schedule. So, welcome everyone. Starting with a poem from the First Free Women, poems of the early Buddhist nuns. Bhadra, lucky. You always considered yourself lucky because things seemed to work out the way you wanted. Now luck has a different meaning. Lucky to be walking a path that finds peace in the arising and passing away of each present moment, regardless of how things work out or don't. Our focus is uh, the first of the three poisons this uh, month. Uh, we're studying for the whole year, we're studying uh, the threes. So the list of three things. And we did the three refuges, and we did the three characteristics, and now we're doing the three poisons. And we're starting with, with greed. So um, greed, along with hatred and delusion, is one of the three roots of suffering. And it grows out of a very natural human inclination to want what is pleasant and not want what is unpleasant. All beings want to be happy and all beings want their suffering to end. Our understanding of what makes us happy has a lot to do with our understanding of greed. Our misunderstanding about what brings happiness can intensify a simple preference for the pleasant into a desire that drives us in an insatiable way. And that is when it becomes the poison of greed. And at this stage, it can be very destructive, not just personally. It has societal and historic ramifications, and I think we are all aware of the far-ranging consequences of greed in our world today. I'm going to focus on three factors which affect the development of greed. The happiness that is involved in wanting, the suffering that is involved in wanting, and the sense of self that's involved in wanting. When we are greedy, we become more and more attached to the object of our desire. We know that the second noble truth is that clinging is the cause of dukkha or of suffering. 
So what helps us let go of clinging to our desire? Loosening our grip on what we want, what we think will make us happy, seems counterintuitive. Why should we? I think we can all agree that our passions can bring us pleasure. Suze, um, in her introductory talk at the beginning of the month, listed some of the kinds of pleasures that we might delight in. Travel and other kinds of exciting, interesting, or even cosmic experiences. Some other examples of passions people might have are art, sports, music, dance, theater, gardening, cooking, boating, hiking, to name a few. Also, we can have a passion for our relationships to family, to our circle of friends, our animals. Or we can have a passion for non-material things like causes and study and work. Maybe you can think of a passion that brings a brightness to your mind and heart right now. So I'm just going to ask everybody, you don't need to say it, just think of what would you say was a passion of yours? Does it bring you joy? Is it delightful for you? Does it feel harmful? Can you just say, this is something I love? It's part of being human. There's nothing wrong with delighting in our passions and loving what we love. The Four Noble Truths are about the middle way, not about Puritanism or asceticism. And as Lindell pointed out, we are householders, not monastics. And many of us are privileged enough to be practicing in the middle of an abundance of opportunities to discover and indulge our passions. Still, keeping an eye on our likes and loves is a good idea because the intensity of our wanting can change. I'm remembering a a poem that Suze introduced when we started this study of greed, and it's by uh, Holly Hughes. It's I really like this poem. I'm just going to quote a few lines from it. It's called Mind Wanting More. And the poet says, but the mind always wants more than it has. One more bright day of sun. One more clear night in bed with the moon. One more hour to get the words right. Getting it right. That's one I have to pay close attention to. For example, with my work. When I was a mom during my working years, I remember taking my young daughter to the park and pushing her on the swing. I had brought some work with me, my papers, my pen. I thought I could multitask, a little work, a little play with my daughter. But I remember her saying to me quite firmly, put that pen down and push me. I wanted to do a good job on my work, and I wanted to play with my daughter, but I was driven by the work, and that was unwholesome. I couldn't let go of it to be present with my daughter. I wish I could say that only happened once, but that wouldn't be true. I remember the feeling of 
I have to finish this, and I have to do it right, and I don't have enough time. There was a gritting of teeth and a bearing down in my body. Now I recognize that this moment was a great opportunity for investigating the wanting mind state. But it happened before I found the Dharma path. Now studying greed this month, I recognize that this was an opportunity to stay with the embodied urgency of the wanting and look underneath and ask, what is driving this wanting to do a good job? even when it means hurting myself and someone I love. Is this doing a good job going to make me and others happy, or is it causing suffering? We can be aware of wholesome wanting and wholesome pleasure as an experience of non-greed and accept them as part of being human and appreciate the joy they bring. We can remember that even if desiring pleasure sometimes turns into greed, we are also generous, loving, and kind. Calling greed a poison is such a strong statement that it can keep us from wanting to look at it in ourselves. But we need to look at it in order to get to the bottom of it, to understand how it works, and to loosen our grip and transform it. My understanding now, when I think back on that day in the park with my daughter, is that I couldn't let go of wanting to do a good job because my self-image was tangled up with doing a good job. There was a lack of confidence in the job I was doing and a fear of criticism and a desire for praise. You might recognize this pair as one of the eight worldly wind pairs. Uh, the eight worldly winds feature the four happy states, pleasure, pain, gain, praise, and fame, along with their unpleasant opposite, pain, loss, blame, and disrepute or shame. So the happiness that I was going after, if I had achieved it, would not be lasting. In with the wind and out with the wind, even if I were praised, my need for praise would most probably set up the conditions for blame or criticism criticism to be not far behind. The things we desire that we think will make us happy are conditional, and so they are subject to change. They are unreliable and out of our control. Matthew Ricard, a Tibetan monk, says, It's pointless to try to shape the world to fit our desires. We must transform our minds. Being alert and seeing when a poison like greed is present is a way to transform the mind. Seeing what is underneath and what is driving our wanting is really important. More often than not, what is underneath is an ego self that needs more padding or massaging or thickening, as our teacher Rodney Smith would say. Some of our sense pleasures are comforting or distracting, giving us a temporary temporary respite from unpleasantness or real suffering, and others are feelings. I want to feel secure. 
I want to feel loved. I want to feel respected. I want to feel more powerful. I want to get my way. I want to be right, for example. It seems like it's easier to notice the wanting of material objects and sense pleasures like sights and sounds, food, clothes, a fancy car, a beautiful house, than it is to see the wanting of non-material pleasure. Tim has talked about, Tim's our, um, one of our guiding teachers at Seattle Insight, and he talked about this month, talked about looking underneath the ob- obvious object of our desire to the experiences in the body which might speak to us as internal needs of the self. It might feel like, oh, I just want to be loved, or I want to feel connection, or I want to feel validated. He said, we have a hunger in the heart, but we eat food for the stomach. If we look for what the heart really wants, we are pointed in the direction of the Dhamma. Um, When we start to see our natural desire for the things we like intensified to a grasping for which there is never enough, it's time to ask this question, what does the heart really want? In the Dhammapada, uh, it is said, if by renouncing a lesser happiness, one may realize a greater happiness, let the wise renounce the lesser, having regard for the greater. Tanisaro Biko has written an article which is found in Access to Insight on, on, um, in the Internet called Trading Candy for Gold. And our teacher, Tweri, read it a long time ago, many years ago, and I've always remembered it. In the article, Tanisaro Biku asks us to investigate what we call happiness. And in our material culture, with its capitalistic economy dependent on greater and greater consumption, we are bombarded with messages that equate happiness with things. And I just this week, I had two examples. I was listening to a show that had uh, um, advertising, which I don't usually hear, but this one said, and it was really quick, like it probably is subliminal. So it said, happiness is your new Chevy blank. And I don't remember the make, but that's what it was. Happiness is your new Chevy blank. And I happened to watch this show. Um, you know, I was kind of blitzing, watching one after another each night for a week. So I heard that phrase over and over again. Happiness is your new Chevy blank. Um, and then I've noticed this um, Amazon truck delivery truck, you know, they're everywhere. And in big letters, maybe you've noticed it too. Happiness is inside. That's what it says on the side of the panel of the truck. Um, So our passion for sense objects, as well as ego validating states of mind, like praise or status can bring a feeling of happiness. But what kind of happiness? The happiness brought uh, with things and with mind states don't last. These are examples of lesser happiness, Tanisaro Biko says. And we need to become disenchanted with these things. 
when my daughter uh, was little, she loved anything that sparkled. So when I think about happiness, I often think how before I started on this path, I imagined many desires sparkling with enchantment in my future. And I elaborated on them, making them greater and greater and more and more sparkly. And I have many stories about my disappointments. They really make good stories. Um, But they really weren't very fun. Uh, when I looked more closely at these sparkling enchantments that I was, you know, going toward, um, I saw the suffering and I felt it when I, when I stayed with them to the end until the disenchantment. There was a lot of distorting or contorting the facts to fit the desire. At first, the truth of the three characteristics seems pretty bleak. Dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. Anicca, impermanence. Anatta, not self. Not perfect, not permanent, not personal. That doesn't sound very sparkly to me, but I'm finding that there is contentment. Not as flashy as some of my daydreams but steadier because this happiness is in alignment with what is true. Lesser happinesses often reveal one of the four misperceptions at work that things don't change. You can be happily ever after that things are pleasurable, that things that are pleasurable don't involve any suffering, that things that are beautiful don't also contain ugliness and that we can own and control our happiness. We really are attracted to the permanent, the pleasurable, the lovely, and what we think we can control. There is a Sutta story about a king who left his kingdom behind and became a monk. He is said to have described his life as a monk as bliss compared to his life as a king. And in this story, he explained to the Buddha Why? He said, before I had guards posted within and without the royal apartments, but I dwelled in fear. Now, on going alone to a forest, I dwell without fear, unagitated, confident, and unafraid, my wants satisfied, and with my mind like a wild deer. I'm reading the biography of Ajahn Chah, um, the um, for Thai forest monk who um, taught, uh, he was very renowned um, in Thailand, and he's very renowned for Western Buddhist uh, teachers also. He trained many of the senior Western Buddhist teachers we know, like Ajahn Sumedho and Jack Cornfield. And in the book I'm reading, monastics are distraught, described as practicing contentment. And the story, uh, just a story I found interesting, was that um, Ajahn Chah was worried about accepting Ajahn Sumedho, who is the senior Western monk who's living right now. Um, he, he's the, he was the abbot of... Um, Amaravati 
monastery in England. Um, so he is now the most senior teacher for the Thai forest Buddhist tradition. Anyway, when he was first in Thailand, he um, was impressed by Ajahn Chah and he wanted to join Ajahn Chah's, uh, live at Ajahn Chah's monastery. And so uh, the story goes that um, Ajahn Chah was worried that Ajahn Sumedho wouldn't be able to endure the difficulties of living in the forest and be content with a ball of sticky rice in his alms bowl. So, um, let's see, this is really good. He, oh yeah, this is it. He had never been, Ajahn Chah had never been to the United States, but he really had seen cowboy movies and he thought they were pretty cool. And he heard about the United States. And so he was worried that Ajahn Sumedho ate bread and milk and cheese to his heart's content every day. And how would he be able to eat, you know, be content with a ball of sticky rice? And so he, he really was worried about accepting him as a monk in his monastery. But, um, uh, Ajahn Smedo, uh, convinced him that that he, he would be able to do it. And so, um, he was told that, he would he would be accepted on the stipulation that he could you know he would be satisfied and content with what was offered him in the monastery so um practicing contentment what does that mean it's a little different than different than going off towards a happiness out there. There seems to be something that I'm more comfortable with saying that I would like to practice contentment. And what's the difference? I read another um, book by a, a nun, and it stuck with me. It was quite a few years ago. She said that as a nun, a monastic, they couldn't ask for what they wanted. I mean, that's really against the rules. You can't ask for what you want. You just take what's offered. And so she said that they they learned, she had learned, and the other nuns she knew, to look at what is offered. Look at what is offered every day. What is being offered to me in this moment? What is being, what has been offered to me today? And to be content. And in doing that, there's something about um, framing it with what is offered because it, it, um, it's not going out after it. And that's where you get greed. It's receiving what is there. So, I think that's a different kind of happiness, a greater happiness. Let's see where, yeah, it's time to finish. I'm just trying to find where my last page is. Okay. 
I'm just going to close with my poem. It's again from the first free women. It's a different nun writing this poem. And it's called Another Tisa. That's the name of the poem. Find your true home on the path. Find the path right here in the center of your own heart. If you keep searching in the past and searching in the future, you will search and search, but your searching will never end. So we'll just take a moment to be quiet before we do the breakout. Okay, I will give you a couple of prompts before I put you into breakout groups. If you have to leave now, this would be the time to leave. We're sorry you can't stay, but I know Claire already had to leave. Um, And we hope you'll stay for the discussion. Okay, the, what I'm su- suggesting, you can really discuss whatever's coming up for you, but a suggestion would be is what is an example of a lesser happiness and a greater happiness for you? That would be one possibility. Or share an experience of um, letting go of some desire some desire you think is not healthy, not might be harmful to you or someone else. How do you do that? What's your experience of letting go, renouncing something that you really also want? And the third one would be what's under the greed for you? Okay. I think we're all... Coming back here. Yeah, there we go. Okay, so we have a, a little time to share out um, what you talked about with greed. Somebody would like Hi, Lauren. That. Hi. I, I wanted to make a comment. I wanted mm-hmm. to thank you for um, this Good talk. I, uh, it's not easy to deal with greed and, uh, there was a lot of thought pro- provocation here this morning. Um, and this is just sort of a, a housekeeping, um, item. You m- quoted, uh, Tim when he said hunger is in the heart. Uh, but I, couldn't keep up with you uh, oh, okay. writing it down. Could you repeat that, please? That Yeah. He said, um, you know, I, it's not exact quote, but it's like the hunger is in the heart, but we eat food for the stomach. Hmm. Thank you. It's um... yeah. Okay, Mark. Thank you, Jean.
Uh, yeah. Um, one thing that we talked about in our group um, was something that's been occurring to me recently is that it seems like what's under grief, or what's under grief, what's under greed is, um, could be trauma. Uh, because I think that, uh, like hoarding or some sort of an addiction could be a response to some trauma, some time of feeling like inadequate or not having enough. And uh, I think anything that's the result of trauma can also inspire some level of compassion that, you know, this person is acting out of some, something. It's a, it's a reaction. Uh, it's a symptom of uh, their greed is a, a reaction to something that's happened to them previously. Just a thought. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I, I had meant to include compassion in my talk because I, it came up when I was thinking about greed too. Um, because um, greed is a poison and it's, that's pretty strong. So if we're feeling that, it seems like having compassion for ourselves is really important too, as well as if we are uh, relating to some person or persons um, who are expressing greed to understand the lack, the, you know, the, the real suffering underneath it. Um, it's kind of interesting that you say that because it reminds me of um, Joseph uh, Goldstein, um, oh, a, uh, one of the uh, most senior teachers in uh, the United States. And um, he was teaching right after 9-11, and they came to the part where they were going to do meta for all beings and it was very touchy and and he was trying to think how to work with that and so he his meta was something about may all beings be free of hatred you know so actually just looking at what might have motivated the action that that is a suffering. Any of those poisons are suffering. So that's that's. Um, I think I'm glad you brought it up because I think that's really an important thing to to look at with greed, compassion. Anybody else want to share a story of greed or non greed too? Because that was in there. You know, it's not all greed. Wanting, it's different degrees of wanting. I really appreciated when you brought up the story where you were talking about 
having your your work to do, your papers to correct, and being so anxious about getting that done and getting that right, even though you had other things you also wanted to do, you know, spending time with your daughter. And it made me recognize in myself that I never didn't don't usually think about it as a kind of wanting or greed, but I realized that some of the things I do too are this sort of greed or wanting for for approval and for people to think well of me because I did things right or this or that and I don't usually think about it in that sense of of greed I just feel like this sort of anxiety about the thing so that gave a new perspective for me and it was a good thing to for me to um, be more aware of so thank you yeah it's when it starts harming others I think that's when or yourself I mean if you see the harm in it if if you don't see any harm you know what what's the the other term for wanting Raja or something like that that that's not harming yourself or others may not be the you know so Maybe I think we have to look at that, too. You know, how much is this harming? And that was harming when I think back on that. That's why I remember that um, scene, because I could really see the harm. Yeah. Okay. Well, it looks like we're coming to the close of our time here. So with that. We'll just take an offering of meta to close our gathering here. Um, may all beings be free of greed, hatred, and delusion. And may they remember their generosity, their loving kindness, and their wisdom. And may the benefit of our practice spread out beyond among us may we feel the benefit of our connection and um, practice this morning and may we spread it out in front of us above us behind us below us to bring greater wisdom and kindness to the world Thank you for coming. Hope we'll see you again.